I'm Michael Foster, and you're listening to It's Good to Be a Man, the podcast where we are extending God's house and father rule by helping men to establish their own houses in strength, workmanship, and wisdom. In this episode, I'm going to talk about the sacrifice of the nice guy. One of the pushbacks that Nan and I often get or have gotten since we got involved in the manosphere, or whatever you want to call it, is that we define the red pill wrong. People will tell us that PUA is not red pill, so pickup artist is what that stands for, or that the red pill isn't really about sex, or they'll say, why don't you talk about this book or that author or this speaker? Well, it's because we don't deeply care about red pill orthodoxy. The fact is, there is no defining text for the red pill. And endlessly arguing over what is and isn't the red pill is a waste of time. It's childish. We're here giving our perspectives as Christians on the topic of masculinity in our day. That's what It's Good to Be a Man's about. We're trying to take unchanging truth, scripture, and apply it to the situation we find ourselves in, and also considering what other people in the modern masculinity space have to say. Now, that being said, there are a series of blogs and books and forums which have loosely functioned as a sort of canon for the red pill, but loosely. One of those books is Robert Glover's No More Mr. Nice Guy, a proven plan for getting what you want in love, sex, and life. The ebook describing nice guy syndrome and what to do about it became a runaway bestseller back in 2001, and then again when it was republished in 2003. Glover's book is central to what has become known as the Red Pill. In a sense, he's the godfather of the manosphere. And here's why. He really gets uh, the explosion of what we call nice guys. And his book does a really good job at describing them and... Uh, you know, what led to the explosion. So what is a nice guy, according to Glover? Well, he's a man who operates according to the belief that if I am good, then I will be loved, get my needs met, and have a problem-free life. Therefore, he must become what he thinks others want him to be and hide the things which he thinks they'll find displeasing. He writes uh, just about everything a nice guy does, is consciously or unconsciously calculated to gain someone's approval or to avoid disapproval. If he can achieve this, then others will fulfill their part of the deal and meet his needs. But this contract is a covert one which only exists in his mind. Glover, based on his observations as a therapist, outlines three of these covert contracts that invariably control the nice guy's behavior often unconsciously. These take the form of a if-then equation. So first, if I am a nice guy, then everyone will love me and like me and women will sexually desire me. Second, if I meet other people's needs without them having to ask, then they will meet my needs without me having to ask. Third, if I do everything right, then I should have a smooth and problem-free world. 
When you really get right down to it, nice guyism is ultimately a people-pleasing performance mindset rooted in a deep fiction. This is simply not how the world works, and it's definitely not how women work. So the nice guy, no matter how hard he tries, is doomed to fail. This means he's also doomed to become embittered, which is why nice guys so often aren't nice. And there's a, there's a subreddit, uh, Nice Guys, and it demonstrates that very clearly. These guys will compliment girls when it's not reciprocal. They'll get all nasty and just really turn pretty horrid. It's also why nice guys feel that being a man is a burden. Glover says by trying to please everyone, nice guys often end up pleasing no one, including themselves. Why is nice guyism so prevalent? Well, Glover connects it to social shifts over the last several decades, shifts that cause men to be weighed down by what he calls toxic shame. Now, I know toxic shame sounds like a bunch of psycho babble, but listen to how he explains it. He explains that toxic shame is not just a belief that someone does bad things. It's a deeply held core belief that someone is bad in their nature. Now, he's not talking about sin. He's talking about masculinity. These are men who have been led to believe that there is something deeply wrong with them because of their masculine nature, attitude, impulse, and longings. Now, how did this happen? Well, there's been a concerted effort to teach boys to despise themselves for many decades. This was perfectly illustrated in the 2019 APA official guidelines for working with boys and men. And here's how these were reported in the New York Times. The guidelines, 10 and all, posit that males who are socialized to conform to traditional masculinity ideology are often negatively affected in terms of mental and physical health. While they acknowledge that ideas about masculinity vary across cultures, age groups, they point to common themes like anti-femininity, achievement, a skill of the appearance of weakness, and a venture in risk and violence. Of course, the traditional masculinity that they're raging against is, is just normal masculinity. They see boys as defective girls. And this is nothing new. Gloria Steinem famously argued that we should be raising our sons more like our daughters. Masculinity is considered unhealthy, toxic, something to be treated, not embraced. They believe we must teach boys to be more feminine, and shame them for being masculine. Boys must be raised to hate their maleness, to hate themselves. A misandric culture produces a mass of deranged men who are ashamed of their masculinity. They've been taught that masculine discourse and behavior is toxic. More, they have been taught that adopting a feminine way will help them get ahead in life. These are Glover's nice guys. They're effeminate. These are men who have been led to believe that it's not good to be a man. Hey, that's the name of the show. How do men break free of nice guy-ism? Glover's answer will be jarring to many Christians. He says, Since nice guys learned to sacrifice themselves in order to survive, recovery must center on learning to put themselves first and making their needs a priority. Now, this would seem to be a blatant contradiction of Scripture. For instance, in Matthew 25, 24 through 28, a favorite passage among modern servant leader types, Jesus says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, 
and their great men exercised authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And again, a similar passage is found written by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5, 25-27. Paul says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Isn't self-sacrifice and servanthood at the heart of the Christian religion? Absolutely, but not in the way that Christian nice guys think. The self-sacrifice and servanthood we see in the Lord Jesus is not feminine. It's true that he sacrificed himself to redeem the church, but notice where his motivation came from. He did so in submission to the will of the Father. The church didn't ask to be saved. The plan of redemption was conceived by the Godhead even before the foundation of the world. In the garden, Jesus prayed, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. His service was done in obedience to God and at his own initiative. He says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I might take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I receive from my Father. Christ put the mission of God first. It was his all-consuming priority. His service wasn't done to please the church. He wasn't trying to get something from the church. His service was done to please his Father, to achieve his mission, and to create a bride for himself. He went to the cross so that he might present to himself the church In all her glory, this is service and sacrifice, but not of the sort that drives nice guys. Christ did not despise himself. He despised the shame of the cross. His mission did not establish a covert contract with his bride. It was established by an overt covenant with his father. And his service was not out of some unsatisfied need, but the grace of abundance This is the antithesis of what nice guys mean when they talk about servant leadership. And the root of this antithesis is the direction in which everything is flowing. With the Lord Jesus in his church, everything flows from him to us. He has what we need. With a nice guy and his wife, everything flows the other way. She has what he needs. To put it in red pill terms, nice guys don't have an abundance mentality. They are rather afflicted with a deep neediness. They are desperate to be filled up. Nice guy self-sacrifice is therefore at odds with biblical self-sacrifice. There's a base level self-care or self-love that every man should have for himself. And in that no way contradicts being self-sacrificial. Rather, it's because of this self-love or self-care that a man is able to love and care for others. This is the basis of Paul's argument in Ephesians 5, 28 through 30. He says, So husbands ought to also to love their own wives as their own bodies. 
He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are the members of his body. Paul pictures a married couple as being a single individual, one flesh. The man is the head, the woman is the body. So to be unloving towards your wife is like causing harm to yourself, like the head commanding the body to stick its hand into a fire. But we know that if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Thus, it only makes sense that a man would show great care for his wife. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. But wait, that's not exactly true. Many people have hated their own flesh. Destructive self-loathing is a real thing. We see this in self-harm, transgenderism, addiction, and suicide. Paul was writing about healthy individuals. Hence, in his commentary on Ephesians 5.39, Matthew Henry says, No man in his right sense ever hated himself. Only deranged individuals hate themselves, right? And Hodge says, Conjugal love, therefore, is as much a dictate of nature as self-love. It is just as unnatural for a man to hate his wife as it would be for him to hate himself or his own body. The man of a sound mind, described by Paul, cares for and loves himself. Look, we're not talking about self-love in the twisted, worldly way. Just a basic commitment to caring for oneself so they can meet the demands and responsibilities of this life. Read through this lens, Glover's prescription for nice guys is correct. Here it is again. Since nice guys learn to sacrifice themselves in order to survive, recovery must center on learning to put themselves first and making their needs a priority. For the Christian man, this means learning that your sacrifice is meaningless, pointless, and ineffectual without the prior sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. It means learning that there is now no condemnation in Christ Jesus, but peace with God, the God who made you to be masculine. And since there is no condemnation, and since He made you to be masculine, you can begin to love the flesh that He gave you, with all its tendencies to fight, conquer, rule, and exercise dominion. Perhaps most importantly, it means that when anyone treats your masculinity as toxic or tries to shame you into acting more womanly, you can cheerfully look them right in the eye, laugh, and say no, and you are obeying God by doing so. This is obviously not a blank check to be a jerk or to deliberately make women uncomfortable. Rather, it's a blank check to be masculine in every way that's virtuous, in every way that God designed you. If you are a man, then it's good to live in a masculine way. Don't be a nice guy. Until next time, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all you do be done in love. 